Welcome to Founder Chats by Barometrics, where we chat with founders and hear how they started and grew their businesses. My name is Leah, and I'm on the marketing team at Barometrics. This week, Brian talked with Mike Potter, founder and CEO of Rewind. Since 2015, over 80,000 companies have trusted Rewind to secure their online stores and safely back up millions of items. Mike and Rewind have experienced tremendous growth and success, but that wasn't always the case. Mike weathered the failure of two companies to get where he is today, and he's going to share with us some of what he's learned along the way. Enjoy. Mike, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks, Brian. As we usually start, I'd love to, for you to take us back to the beginning. Like, where, where did your entrepreneurial journey start? Yes, my entrepreneurial journey started, you know, a, a long time ago. So I'm 46 years old now. And I remember my dad encouraging me to go and sell soft drinks at nearby offices when I was, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old, sort of thing. Never took him up on the offer, but, you know, he was encouraging me right from as long as I can remember to, to start my own business. And then in the first year of university, I remember applying to a whole bunch of jobs for, for summer uh, work and getting rejected over and over and over again and thought, you know, I can't go a whole summer without doing anything. And so I started my own business uh, in first year university and just teaching people how to use the internet. So that was sort of 1995, 96. The business was called Internet at Home, which was a, a much larger company as well, had the same name, but it was you know doing web development, creating web pages and teaching people how to use the internet. And that was the first sort of official company that I started. What was it like teaching people to use the internet back then? It was interesting. You know, it was it was not it was not as usable, I think, as it is today. So, you know, there were things like news groups where people could participate in communities as opposed to everything being done through the web. And so trying to teach people about those was was difficult. Email was a bit of a foreign concept to people at the time. I remember, you know, one of my friends in university, when I first introduced email to him, we went to the computer lab. And I said, okay, you can send an email to anyone in the world. And, and in the two field, he put his dad's home mailing address, you know, and this is an engineering student. He's a pretty smart guy, but it was just so new for people that they didn't really know how it worked. Right. And so everybody had to kind of learn back then how things worked, what an email address was, who you could send things to. And so it was a good business. There was definitely, you know, a lot of people who wanted to figure out what the internet was, figure out how to get online, see what was available to them. So it was, it was a really good business there, you know, in that late sort of mid to late 1990s. Yeah, I wonder, maybe I'm trying to think if it's how different it is now, but I wonder how much of your job was just trying to also keep them safe online, especially in like the early, like, extreme like cowboy days <laughs> like how much like you know it's like oh yeah no don't go to that news group or don't don't go over there on that part of the internet yeah you could definitely find yourself in uh, in some not safe for work environments right but, but you know it was a really interesting job and i think people appreciated having somebody who understood technology coming to their house and explaining to them how they could use this you know pretty amazing tool that was starting out at that time how did you build your internet expertise at the time? Just kind of tinkering, starting, you know, I I learned pretty early that, you know, you couldn't really break a computer. You know, if anything happened to it, you could always just reformat the hard drive and start over. And so I did that. I used to do that a lot where you you try and do something and then break something and, and have to restart. And so when the internet came around, it was a bit of that of, 
you know, understanding that you can figure things out, you can install this software, you can understand how it works, you can tinker. And if something goes wrong, you can always just reformat your hard drive and start over again. And so that was the best way I found that I could learn is always just doing things, tinkering around, playing around, testing things out. And then, you know, eventually as you, as you learn more about it and you start getting into building your own web pages and understanding how HTML works and understanding a little bit of JavaScript at the time and then moving into more server languages like PHP and starting to build little programs that could do interesting things. So it was just always tinkering. It's always just sort of fooling around and not being afraid that if something breaks, you know, you're you're gonna be in trouble. Yeah, that's great. I remember those days of yeah. So I was like, well, I feel like people were very, very nervous, very intimidated. And uh, even myself, you know, it's just like, and I'm like, well, can you do this? Like, just try it. What happens if I click this? Click it, find out. (laughs) Like, you'll you'll see, like, you're right. There is like, uh, there's maybe a a time cost, but the, you know, the the total downside, especially at the time when, you know, there really wasn't that much like, you know, you didn't have that much important data on computers. Like, yeah, the worst case scenario is, hey, you just got to start over, fresh install of of Windows, Windows 95. And, you know, then you're, you're back up, you're back up and running. Yeah, exactly. You've got all you've got all of your documents saved on a floppy drive anyway, right? So what's the harm? Yeah. That's really cool. And so how long did you how long did you run that business for? Ran that business for about three years. So I used that business to actually start another business called inthehack.com. So I was a big curler growing up. My parents were both curlers, avid curlers, and and I curled as well competitively when I was in juniors. And we started this website called inthehack.com. So the hack is where you you know you start your curling throw. It's what people push out of to to throw the rock down the ice. And I thought there was a nice little play on words with you know hack and hacking and stuff like that. So created this website called inthehack.com. It was a bit of a message board. There was a message board. There was curling news. Actually, you know, early two thousands had an online store that was selling curling gloves that I'd imported from Pakistan. But that that internet at home business kind of evolved into this curling website. And then the curling website evolved into, into a consulting business for the Canadian Curling Association. So in, 19, in 1998, curling was going to be an Olympic sport for the first time in, in Nagano, Japan. And so in 1997, they had what were called the Canadian Olympic curling trials. So this is where they picked the teams that would represent Canada to go to the Olympics in February of 2018. And I suggested to them, because my dad was was involved with the Canadian Curling Association at the time, I went to the president and I said, you know, you should really put the scores of this event on the internet. Like this is where people will will love to, you know, get their scores and they can stay up to date with what's going on in the event. It was all pretty new to them at the time, but they let me do that. So I went to a brand in Manitoba to that event and put curling scores on the internet for the first time. I was, you know, watching the games and then manually updating these web pages that people would go to. And they'd reload them. And I remember, you know, on the Saturday and the Sunday, everyone was watching the games on TV. They're all at home. But Monday, when they all went to work, it just exploded in popularity. The whole system I built crashed. It couldn't handle the load. I had to kind of rebuild it from scratch. That second business in the hack became a consulting business. I worked for the Canadian Curling Association for about three or four years doing all the major curling events in Canada. And, and really sort of started, kickstarted them on their, on their internet journey to, to put scores on the internet for them. So that was sort of late 1990s into the early 2000s. 
That's really cool. What was the nature of the consulting that you're doing for them? It was just updating their web presence and building their web presence so that, you know, they could put the scores on the internet, they could put the standings on the internet, like all the event, all the major events that they ran could have updated information on their website so that people could, you know, understand what was happening at the at the curling events that were going on. Cool. So you probably didn't use this language at the time, but you were like digitizing the sport of curling, which is kind of kind of cool. Kind of a cool early early movement there. Yeah, we really were. There was we we actually I had two people from the states, two brothers who I connected with who actually wrote a Java applet that allowed us to position all of the rocks after every shot. And so we we were literally digitizing the curling games. Like we could position the rocks. So I had you know, volunteers at these events, and we would manually position the rocks after every shot, and we'd save it, and that would upload a file to the internet. And then people could kind of watch, quote unquote, watch a digitized version of this curling game. They could see, you know, where the rocks were positioned after every shot and what was happening. And then eventually, they added movement into that where you could sort of draw a line and say, okay, the rock comes in on this path. And I think if we had, you know, continued down that path, I mean, obviously, you know, video kind of ends up taking over and now you can watch any curling game. You can watch just the video of it. But I think it would be really, you know, the next step for me would have been putting indoor GPS devices, uh, like tracking devices into the rocks themselves, into the handles of the rocks, which would have automatically updated the locations. And I thought it could have been become like a really great training tool for people where, you know, you could say, okay, show me all the times where a team has scored four points, for instance, in one end or scored three points in one end. And what did the what did the rock setup look like? What were the shots that were made? And you could really, you know, take curling to the next level and really digitize the entire game. It's not unlike a little bit of what you see these days with digitization of, of any of the professional sports, right? Where they're putting tracking devices onto the players, into the puck sometimes for the NHL. And you've got all these advanced stats of you know, how the football players closing their distance or how the the throw of the baseball and, and the angle of velocity off the end of the bat sort of things. Like, I think that's the type of stuff that, that we, we could have done. We were doing like a super early version of it, you know, in the early 2000s, about 20 years ago for curling. That's wild of, yeah, I could totally see that going into that, that field of sports analytics where you're, you know, this is a big, <laughs> a big business where all that data gets fed back somewhere. Actually, I, don't, I have no idea how it works, but evidently somebody, you know, they track everything and then they come up with like, oh, well, this is the, you know, this is the appropriate way to throw a free throw or when your team is in this position and the other team's in this position, you're, you know, it's advantageous or whatever the case is. So it seems like you were, especially as you started to draw the, the paths and the lines and, you know, get, going down that path, it does. Yeah. It feels like you were like, uh, it maybe, yeah, like you said, maybe like 20 years too early, but you were you were definitely right on that path. Yeah, it's such an easy sport to do it, right? Because it's really only in two dimensions. The rocks don't leave the ice. And so it's it's a lot easier to do that than than in either, you know, three dimensions if you're looking at like a hockey puck, for example, or even a basketball or football or baseball. So it was a, it was definitely a sport that sort of appealed to that. But that was, you know, we were we were really early on and pushing, I think, a lot of boundaries and you know, generally speaking, at least in Canada, curling is the largest amateur sport in the country. There, there is no other sport that's as popular as curling at an amateur level. The, obviously, professional sports are different, but it's the largest amateur sport in, in Canada. And so it really, it kind of was the poster boy in some cases of like how to build an, 
internet presence and what you can do on the internet and how to engage your fans online and stuff like that. At this time, are you still running the internet at home business or have you kind of, has that sort of given way to focusing on, is it in the, in the hack? In the hack. Yeah. It it gave way. It was only, I only really needed that as a summer job, right? To just provide some income. And so I, I did that just for the one summer built, you know, did the consulting, showed people how to use it, did some internet development and just did that for the one summer as a summer job. And then, and then really focused my time on that curling site. Cause you know, it was obviously, it was a pretty popular curling site. It would have like hundreds of thousands of visitors on a monthly basis. It was making some good money from an advertising perspective as well. And obviously it was leading to this consulting contract with the Canadian Curling Association. So, you know, from a financial perspective and a time perspective, it was definitely taking up all of my time. Sounds like it was really, really going well. What, what happened next? We ended up, so I ended up graduating from university and doing that for another couple of years, but it wasn't something that I wanted to do long-term. I think one of the things that I've always focused on in my career is, is ensuring that I can move on to doing something else. And so I'd built this system for the for the Canadian Curling Association that really allowed them to to do all of what I was doing without me. And they ended up doing that. They they really didn't no longer needed me. The statistics program that they had developed to, to manage stats at the events was able to upload the scores automatically. They didn't need somebody like me to go to the events and handle it manually. And, uh, and so I was pretty happy to to leave there and then you know, start working at, at a sort of quote unquote real company, which is what I did after that. I joined us little startup in Ottawa that was building an internet browser out of the Mozilla web browser, sorry, an internet operating system out of the Mozilla web browser and, and joined that company and stayed there for about three years after graduating from university. Cool. What were you doing for them? We were building, so if you remember in the early 2000s, there's going to be all these internet appliances that were going to be around. You'd have, you know, all these computers in your home. There'd be one in your living room and your kitchen and all over. And we were building an, an operating system to, to basically run those internet, internet appliances. And the decision at that point had been made to run it in the Mozilla web browser. So we took the, the browser part, like the actual engine really. And started building applications that could run sort of in the browser or sort of parallel to the browser. It was all based on Linux. And I ended up building the calendar application that that ended up becoming the Mozilla Calendar project. So if anybody's out there use the Mozilla Calendar that was started, I started that about you know, about 20 years ago now. And we took our code from from what we had built for our own product and open sourced it and donated it to the Mozilla Foundation so that they could have a calendar in addition to the, you know, contacts, address book and web browser that they had as part of as part of the Mozilla project. Cool. So how did it go with the internet appliances all over people's houses? Yeah, how did that work out? Eh? <laughs> Didn't quite work out, I think, as well as as well as anyone had hoped. I, I think we're, we're probably a little bit closer there with, you know, with your iPhone and your iPad. And some of the other devices that, you know, that companies like Facebook and Amazon have for, you know, screens and being able to communicate with people. But it was, you know, again, you know, I think one of the things that I've learned is you really need to have very good timing. You need to have a good product. But you also have to have the, the fortune of having good timing in the market. And the product or the idea that we were building was, I think, just a little bit ahead of its time, probably built not necessarily in the right technology, but the whole idea that you have on the iPad or the iPhone of like a single screen application without having to manage Windows. I mean, that was stuff that we were working on for that browser. So you could only do, you know, one application at a time. 
unfortunately the you know the hardware just wasn't there and 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 the idea never really ended up taking off but it was fun to work there i did that for about three years yeah i sort of remember i I don't know if this is around the same timing but it felt like there was like this like uh, proliferation of crazy ideas like different operating systems like as you're going through this i remembered one that was like it was like a 3d operating system and it was like instead of having I I think effectively they just like mapped your desktop over like a sphere. So instead of having like all of your icons on the desktop, you actually would like navigate around a globe and click on things. And I think once you did that, it was effectively, (laughs) effectively the same thing. It feels like just during that time, there was a lot of, we didn't, we didn't know what direction all these different technologies were going to go in. And it kind of felt like everybody was just so excited. We just kind of, we kind of tried everything. Like, all right, well, let's go, let's go in every direction and see what happens. Yeah, I think, I think, yeah, I I would agree. I think it was a time of a lot of experiments, right? Especially, you know, there was, there was a lot of work being done, you know, Windows was obviously the dominant operating system at the time. Mac even wasn't nearly as popular as it is now. So Windows was completely dominant, but there was a lot of effort and and money being put into Linux-based desktop operating systems. Like I live in Ottawa and, and headquarters of Corel are here in Ottawa. And I remember Corel getting into Linux as well and, and trying to build a, a desktop for that. There was a lot of work being done from an open source perspective to try and move desktops forward. So a lot of experimentation, a lot of ideas came out of it. But yeah, I think that was exactly right. It was, you know, this time of of a lot of change because the internet was coming around and you know that was new and computers were getting fast enough to really do some amazing things and it, it definitely was this time of i think mass experimentation to try and figure out like hey what can what can we build what can work so what what happened kind of did you leave the company before things sort of i'm, I'm assuming things fell apart so <laughs> correct me if i'm wrong there did you did you leave ahead of that or did you kind of ride that out i'm sort of curious like what what did that look like like when did everybody kind of look at each other and go like, yeah, I think we might be might be a little bit too early on this one. Yeah, the company's pivoted and is actually still going around. It's kind of pivoted to this file sharing solution for for hard drives. So it's surprising, you know, how how the business can can stick around. The the you know the original CEO is no longer there. The company's been bought and sold a couple of times, I think. And but it's you know pivoted into like something that was not really related to what we were doing at the start. I, I was there for about three and a half years, and I, I kind of saw that it wasn't going anywhere and nothing was going to happen. And so at that point, really, I had a decision to make: is like, what what do I want to do? Do I want to continue doing software development and 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 you know get more into computer computer software and building software, or do I want to take a different approach? And I ended up deciding that I wanted to do my MBA and learn a bit more about the business side because I had a pretty good you know a pretty good technical knowledge. I had a little bit of business experience having run a couple of companies, so I took a year off and did my MBA at Ottawa U here in Ottawa, and and then joined Adobe shortly after that, doing product marketing and product management for Adobe Flex, which was sort of flash for developers around that time. Oh, yeah. I mean, it sounds not totally similar, but kind of this this similar type of uh, platform play. I don't I don't remember. I remember, obviously, I remember flash a lot. And I think I remember flex. And I think I remember, was that also around the same time of air? I feel like Adobe was doing, <laughs> was doing a lot of stuff during that, that time. What was it like working working at Adobe during that time? It was great. You know, it was really eye-opening. You know, my first job having been at a startup of 20, 30 people, 
and then joining Adobe, which I think at the time was, you know, two or 3,000 people. And I remember at both companies, ironically, when I first joined, I had problems with my email. And when I was, when I was at uh, that first startup, you know, the way you solved your email problem was you, you kind of yelled over to uh, the IT guy, said, Hey, Jody, like my email's not working. Can you help me out? And he'd log into the server and fix it. And when you're at Adobe, when your email's not working, you, you know, go to a form, you fill out a support ticket and they get back to you, you know, in, in a day or two sort of thing. So it was just a real different eye opening experience that, you know, this definitely wasn't a small company. It was, it was a really large company, but. It's a fantastic time to join the company. I joined right before they announced the acquisition of Macromedia. So I, I had actually joined working on what's called the Lifecycle product line, which is their enterprise software, sort of doing fillable forms and workflows in PDF. And then within my first few months, you know, they I think the stock split. They bought Macromedia. They announced a new office in Ottawa, and it was very clear that. You know, this was a, you know, you were in a, you were working for a really big company at that point. You weren't working for a small startup and, and it was just a fantastic experience. And, you know, the acquisition of Macromedia really opened up a lot of opportunities for people to work on things that, that they really truly enjoyed. And one of the things that I loved about, about Macromedia and, and working on Flash was just the, the number of people that we were trying to go after, right? The enterprise software business is not for me. It, you know, large, large contracts with relatively few customers doesn't really appeal to me, but lots of customers spending very little or, or nothing at all in some cases was, was more my cup of tea. So when the opportunity came to join the, the Flex team and do, do product marketing and, and product management for Flex, I was, I was more than happy to take on that challenge. Yeah. Why did you decide to do? The go more the the product marketing side instead of well really any anything else. I just enjoy that you know developer marketing for me was something that I really understood because I'd been a software developer and I had that good sense of business knowledge as well. So marketing flex to developers was something that just came real natural to me. I think because I was essentially the audience, I understood it and I had some ideas on how to expand the audience and go after different types of developers other than the the Java developers that they focused on previously. I think I was able to bring a lot to that group and expand its footprint into other communities like the PHP community that I had, you know, been a part of for for quite a few years. Did you find any challenges working in an organization of that size, especially when you're you're really like personally f- like familiar and like I'm sure you had thoughts of like, wow, I really wish I had this when I was doing, you know, I doing like updating these curling, you know, <laughs> like it'd be great to have this sort of framework to build these visualizations off of. And so I imagine you probably had a lot of ideas. Did you have any issues working within a large business to get some of those actualized or are they actually pretty receptive to sort of some of the, some of the thoughts that you had? It's a very, I think, accepting company. It's, I think it's one of the world's like literally one of the world's best companies, right? In terms of the success that they've seen and, and the transition that they've had into cloud software has been, you know, real almost second to none, maybe to Microsoft, right? Transforming that desktop business into in, into sort of recurring revenue. And so I don't think, you know, you don't get that way without being real open to new ideas and and new possibilities of doing things. So I always found people there to be very open to different ways of working. There's certainly challenges around some of the processes and that we had wanted to implement. Like I remember one, for example, when 
we wanted to allow people to download our SDK without requiring somebody to give us their email address, but just make it optional, right? So that was a real foreign concept to them at the time that you would allow somebody to download something and not treat them like a quote unquote lead. And I was there saying, listen, developers don't, they, they don't, they probably don't want to get your emails. They just want to download the software and we need to make it as easy as possible for them to get started right away. So there's some concepts there that were relatively uh, new to the company that I had to try and explain to some people. But, you know, at the end of the day, yeah, everyone was pretty open about trying new things and experimenting and see what worked and, and doing things that were sometimes a little bit outside the box just to make sure that, that, you know, the experts who could, who were asking to run these programs could do what they wanted to do. That's awesome. How long were you with Adobe? I was almost, I was there for about six years, just under six years. That took me to sort of early 2010s. And, you know, at that point, you know, TechCrunch was, I was reading TechCrunch every day and reading about all these startups that were going and, and really wanting to do my own startup, like a real startup, not a, not a like consulting company, not a small independent thing that I'd done, you know, before but rather a software company that was really designed for, for high growth. And so I left Adobe to run my first startup, which was basically doing almost like a social media campaign management tool, with the idea being that you would want to coordinate posts onto YouTube, onto your blog, onto Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, around these major announcements. And so we built a tool that could help sort of coordinate that, that could measure that that could aggregate all the comments around and the feedback around what was being posted we built that tool as as sort of the first startup that i ran and it was called add in social how did that go it didn't didn't go all that well we you know one of the things we learned was that what we were building was something that agencies would typically have a person doing as opposed to wanting to automate and agencies would take that person who they'd pay, you know, 15 or $20 an hour, sometimes less and build them out at, you know, 60, $70 an hour. So essentially our product was successfully reducing their revenue. And so we had a hard time finding people that could, that, that would use it on a regular basis. I think that was, you know, one of the things I learned was that I, I quit that job at Adobe way too early before we really had any traction, before we had any customers, before we had any revenue. And so that, you know, that was a lot of pressure at the time. You know, I've got a family of, of two boys and, and my wife and, and we were expecting our daughter at the time. There's just a lot of, there's a lot of pressure that went on to that. We ended up getting into a startup accelerator in Toronto and really trying to make it, but ultimately we didn't really find any, we, we didn't find much product market fit, I don't think, for that product. We pivoted at the, at the end, we ended up pivoting to this embeddable social media tool that email marketing companies could put into their product. So if you were an email company and you needed to allow your customers to post to social media, you could use um, our tool to do that. And we ended up selling that part of the business to a company in Nashville called Miama, which was an email marketing company out in Tennessee. And and they took the technology and and I, and I think they integrated that into their into their email software. So it sounds like it was a pretty stressful experience. Yeah, definitely. I think you know you put a lot of pressure on when you've got you know kids and mortgage and car payments and all the other stuff, and you got to put food on the table, and you're running a business that has no revenue. Yeah, it's a you know it's a definitely a stressful definitely a stressful time. 
and certainly learned a lot from that experience and you know made sure that as we as we did this sort of last company or this company that we're working on right now that we didn't make the same mistakes and i think as long as you know as long as you're you're doing things and you're learning from your mistakes then i think you're in good shape and definitely the experience wasn't that great but we i ended up learning a lot out of it and it certainly helped me be more successful you know 10 years later whatever it was 5 years later when we started rewind yeah that's awesome and I learned actually the same lesson. So I, one of my previous products that I that I built up, we sold to agencies was one of the, uh, I didn't understand anything about marketing or, or really effectively anything at that point in time. But we it sort of was an emergent quality that agencies were, were really, uh, really like to use the product that I had created. And I, I forged some really good relationships. And I think because of that, as we were trying to build out roadmap and different features, we got that basically that same feedback very candidly of like, you know, again, because I was so clueless, I didn't really even, I didn't understand the business model of my customers. So as we would try to create automations, like, oh, wouldn't it be great if it just did this for you? Or what if, you know, automatically this happened and this moved over here? And, you know, because I had those good relationships, they were able to kind of pull me aside and say like, hey, man, like (laughs) we charge, like we, we charge our customers for that. Like you're, you know, it wasn't wasn't directly in like their major line of business, but they they had the opportunity to tell me of like, well, no, we actually agencies I think are kind of unique in this quality. But like they're like, oh no, we pay like just like you said, we pay somebody fifteen dollars an hour and we bill that out at two hundred dollars an hour. So in fact, yeah, it would be cool if you could do it automatically, but it would actually be worse for our businesses. And I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't obviously, I didn't think about that. That's a really good point. Yeah, I think understanding your customers and understanding their business is obviously a super important thing as you're a product manager, product marketing, you know, to really understand your customers and and the drivers for their business is important. There must be some agencies out there that are, you know, that would be open to these types of conversations and making things more efficient, but it sounds like neither you or I found them. Yeah, I, I th- in my experience, it was like, and, and maybe, uh, of course, I'm like, looking back, it's all hindsight. I felt like, from my perspective, like the top tier agencies now, you know, like, what does that mean? But, you know, like subjectively, the best of the best didn't want to, if they could get more done in less time, if they could automate and they weren't as concerned about a couple of billable hours, they would focus on, well, how can we deliver the most results for our customers in the shortest period of time, and they were they sort of traded off of their they, they traded off of their name and their reputation for delivering, especially like in the marketing world and those sorts of things. Where it's, it's real, like I tomorrow I could start a marketing agency and I could probably do I could actually probably do okay just with like the baseline things that I know. But the ones that were at the top of the top, they were the ones that were like, no, yeah, well we we would actually like to have these features. We want to move faster. Like we don't care if we lose two billable hours if we can take on like they were thinking more like well if we save this time we don't need to hire more people to take on more customers they were they were looking further down the road but i think that that might like that's not a that's not great from a marketing or sales perspective because you can't it'd be very difficult for me as like this like solar solo founder to change the ethos of the business that i'm selling to uh, and i didn't realize that i, I probably could have just like charged like a hundred times more or something like that and actually just sold to those top tier agencies. But that thought like never crossed my mind at the time. Yep. Totally familiar story. So it it sounds like we're getting relatively close to 
current day. Do you want to sort of talk about the the story of how you decide to start Rewind? Yeah. So my friend James and I had worked together at uh, at a startup in the past and really enjoyed working with him. And so I went and, and approached him one day and said, you know, do you want to do something on the side? I'm a little bit bored at work. And he agreed. He had he had had sort of the similar thoughts and had tried that with a couple of other people before. So he's definitely open to it. And so it was about, uh, it was about seven years ago, actually, I think that we met for lunch and we decided to start working on, on a product. And it wasn't what, what ended up turning into Rewind. It was actually a completely different product at the time. We spent about six months building that. And, you know, it's funny because I could just, I recognize the same pattern as what happened in that first startup. I knew it wasn't going to be successful. And so we were about six months in and I, I said to him, look, I think, you know, we need to do something different. This isn't going to work out. And when I suggested backups, you know, because I thought backups would be a really good business. Generally, I think they're a pretty sticky product. Like if you subscribe to them, you know, you know, you need them and and you're unlikely to unsubscribe from them. And I remember telling him, you know, let's do backups. And and he said, what do you want to back up? And like I said earlier, you know, we're in Ottawa. Shopify started in Ottawa. So we could see this, you know, massive company being built about six years ago. I said, why don't we back up Shopify? Like we can, we can do that. And he, you know, I remember him saying, like, that's crazy. Like, why would anyone need to back up Shopify? It's in the cloud. And, you know, that's why people move to the cloud is so they don't have to do backups. Nothing bad has ever happened in the cloud before. <laughs> I was like, I go, oh, uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was just this really interesting dynamic, right? Because we've got this other product that that we both really liked, but it wasn't going anywhere. And so we end up saying, we'll regroup in two weeks. I'll work on this backup product. You work on the other one and we'll see where we're at. And and so within a couple of weeks, I you know, I'd created a web page. I'd created a landing page. I'd posted in the forums and I had about 20 or 30 people that had already signed up to be notified when Rewind launched. And that was enough to convince him that, you know, what we were that this idea had much more legs than the other idea that we had working on that they really had no customers. So we started working on Rewind for full-time at that point. Yeah. And you were, you were able to pre-sell customers at that point? We didn't pre-sell them. We actually made the product free to start. I know there's a lot of you know debate online on whether that's the right approach or not. We really wanted to know if people had a problem by losing data. That was what we were trying to validate initially was, is this even a problem? Like we can see there are forum posts about it. We can see that, you know, yes, people have had problems on their own Shopify store that obviously, you know, can't be recovered from Shopify. Most people probably don't know this, but in most cloud services, the backup that the service provider has is is a bit of an all or nothing approach. So if the whole system fails, they can recover it. But if your account has a problem, that's not what their backup is for. And so we could see people basically having that issue where their account has a problem, either from a third-party application, an employee making a mistake, a CSV import or something like that. And they really have no way to recover the data because it's only affecting their account. It's not this entire system issue. And so we made Rewind free initially just to see if people had that problem. And we validated that in the first sort of six months that we, that we were live. And we could see our installs increasing over time and the speed of installs increasing over time. And so in January, we launched in June of 2015. And in January of 2016 was when we started charging customers. Oh, that's great. And so you you got those initial customers in and you had enough of them sign up. And you said, okay, like this is a problem and, and people are at least aware of it. 
And was that was that the motivation you needed to like kind of keep going with it, or what was sort of what was the decision point that you that you had there? So at that point, we recruited two other friends, Sean and Julian, who came on to to work with us. So the four of us were working part time, nights and weekends, building building this application up. And you know, every month we'd add a few thousand dollars of MRR. And you know, the great part about a recurring business is as long as your churn is low, then you know that money stays and you you grow it over time. And so within a few months, we were making ten thousand dollars and growing nicely. And you know, we're looking and saying, wow, like we're almost at the point where one of us can quit and and go full time on this. And Sean ended up being the first one to do that in September of twenty of twenty fifteen. So you know he's about we're about nine months in now from when we started charging, and he quit and went full time. And then Julian and I quit in uh, February of twenty sixteen and joined full time. James came full time about a month or two later, and we were kind of off to the races and and starting to grow this business that was up to you know twenty or thirty k of MRR at that point. And compared to your your first startup, this sounds like a considerably less stressful environment because you have customers and you have you have revenue to to pay yourself with, and you also have trajectory as well. So you can sort of see like, okay, well, not only is this revenue doesn't seem to be durable, but it like we're getting more customers. It's it's at least heading in the right direction. Yeah, that's definitely true. It's a much easier discussion with your you know with your wife when you're saying, listen, I'm going to quit my job. And go to this other company that has no revenue versus I'm going to quit my job and I'm actually not going to take any salary change because the company's making so much money that we can keep the same salary that we have now. So I'm really just transferring from this one job to the next job and it's not affecting, you know, how much money we're going to have at home to pay the bills and stuff. That was a much easier conversation. <laughs> way easier. Yeah. We ended up staying in our jobs probably way too long, to be honest with you. We probably should have quit earlier. It was. I'd say the stress started coming when, you know, you're trying to work and and do your job sort of nine to five. And then, you know, in the evenings and on the weekends, you're supporting, you know, we were supporting like over a thousand customers. And and that becomes really difficult because, you know, they've got questions. You really need to be spending more time on it, but you can't because you've got this job that you're working on nine to five. And obviously, you've still got you know kids and family obligations and stuff like that. So the stress was was different. It wasn't you know there wasn't a financial stress, but it was a different kind of thing because you really wanted to make that work. You know, you'd built this thing up where you've got thousands of customers and everyone's putting in this amazing level of effort in their part time, and you're just you know you're trying to to do everything. You're trying to do your regular job. You're trying to make sure you can grow the business, and you're trying to make sure that you know, you keep that revenue so that, yeah, you can quit, you know, in a month or two from now, whenever, whenever it works out. And, and luckily we were able to sort of navigate that and, and make it all work out. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And it, it, it feels like it's difficult to nail that timing exactly because especially with your previous experience of maybe jumping in too early, you, you were probably thinking at least subconsciously like, okay, well, let's not, you know, let's not jump in too hastily. But I can also imagine, especially for that type of problem or that type of product, when customers have problems, they probably feel very time sensitive to them. So, you know, you get an email and you you don't have a chance to check it until six or seven PM, but they sent it at 
9 a.m. and you know you get the you get the email thread of like every 45 minutes you get an increasingly <laughs> concerned email from them like i know that's you care about it too it sounds like you know it's like you you care about the product and you, and you want it to do well and you care about the customer so it just puts you i can definitely I, i've been there too it's a, it is a different type of it's a different type of stress for sure yeah, and and I think it forces you, you know, what the what it ends up doing is forces you to build a real a much better product, I think, because they have to be able to do things themselves. They can't be relying on you. So that was what we ended up building, right? Was this tool that people could could back up and they could restore their data without ever talking to us. They could do it on their own and it generally worked without many problems. Obviously, sometimes you're hitting edge cases in the APIs and stuff wouldn't work 100% properly, but for the most part, you know, it was it was customers were able to serve themselves. They were able to to install the product. They were able to subscribe. They were able to pay us. They were able to see that the backups were working. They were able to recover their data without ever talking to a human being. And that was, you know, it was definitely not easy to get that user experience correct and to get that that flow right. And but we ended up doing that, and that was really beneficial to helping grow the company early on. Yeah, sounds almost like. Would you say that the kind of split between day job and night job almost sounds like it sets you up for success from a product standpoint because you you had to make it like it just wasn't an option to say like oh well if you if you have questions just give us a call and we'll walk you through it but that wasn't that wasn't a choice at the time so it almost sounds like that was something that made the product much stronger and and put it uh, in a better long-term direction i think there's lots of decisions there that were made that that certainly helped the the product and helped the company. I think that's definitely one of them, you know. And the other thing I think is, if you've got that safety net, like if you've got your your job, you don't have the same level of stress worrying about how successful it's going to be. And that really does let your mind solve problems and work better, right? I, I we we ended up getting into an accelerator here in Ottawa, called Invest Ottawa, and I would meet so many entrepreneurs who were saying, you know, oh, I'm working 10 hour days, 12 hour days, 14 hour days on this startup. I work all the time on it and I'm not getting anywhere. And I'd often think like, yeah, like, do you think that maybe that's your problem? That like, you're not, you're not able to just clear your head and think about the problem that you have in front of you and how you would solve it. And I know, you know, I've talked to VCs, I've talked to investors who are really you know, they'll, they'll ask you like, look, I'm not going to invest unless you go full time. Like you have to be committed. You have to be committed. And I, I understand that, but I really do firmly believe that you're much better off, you know, doing something on the side and trying to make that work than jumping in, you know, two feet and, and forcing it to, to, to work and, and putting that pressure on you. I think you're more likely to be successful if you've got a safety net, but it is difficult. Like it's, it's extremely challenging to, to really work two jobs essentially, you know, for as long as we did. And I think that's one of the more amazing things that, that we were able to do that. The four of us were all able to do that for, you know, essentially nine to to 18 months, depending on who you were, we were able to work two jobs and, and we were all committed to it. And that I think is, is extremely rare to find four people who are that committed to making something successful. Yeah, that's incredible. Do you think that through that time, because you had the the financial you know, the financial safety net, do you think that in addition to having a clear head and and being able to think about problems clearly, did you also have the mentality of like, well, because you're not you're not fighting for the for the money, 
being a little bit more long-term or big picture. Like, well, you know, I'm thinking of the scenario of like, well, if you're, if you're, money, if your paycheck was dependent on it, you'd kind of do like whatever you needed to do to get any any amount of cash through the door possible. But because you have the financial side taken care of, I I wonder, maybe maybe this wasn't in your mind at all, but I wonder if there's also sort of mentality of like, well, if we're going to do this, it needs to be bigger. Like I don't, you know, like I'm sure 10K MRR was awesome, but you're like, well, we're not all going to quit our jobs for 10K MRR. This, This has to be 100 or 200 or 500K MRR. Did did that environment also sort of push you towards thinking like almost like thinking bigger, or did that really like not come up through that through that process? I think part of the early success was actually due to experimentation, which I do think the you know having a second job or that safety net helped with. So we we experimented a ton with our pricing early on. Like when we went to market, our prices were five dollars, fifteen dollars, and twenty nine dollars a month. And, you know, we quickly realized that for some of these larger stores and merchants at $29 a month was way too inexpensive. And so we experimented with pricing and, and raising that price up. And that price went from 29 to 59 or 29 to 39 to 59 to 99 to 299 to 399 to 499. Like we just kept raising it until people really complained. And I think the fact that we had you know, we had work on the side or we had this revenue that we had generated gave us the freedom to sort of experiment with different pricing models. Because, you know, if, if it didn't work out, well, that's fine. You, you know, you might lose one month of revenue, but you can always switch it back. And it's not, it's not going to affect you. And I think we became very, very experimental. And we're, we're really trying a lot of new things because we, we had this freedom to to test and to see what the results were without the fear of, you know, the whole thing going to zero and, and losing your home sort of thing. Did you learn anything surprising as you were bumping up the price over and over again? The so most surprising thing was really just how much people were willing to pay, to be honest with you. You know, when we first started Rewind, we, we talked to people who were in the Shopify ecosystem. We talked to people who worked at Shopify, you know, th- Part of the feedback we had from people who worked at Shopify was that, you know, it's a good idea, but nobody will ever pay anything for it. We talked to another Shopify app developer who thought that people would be willing to pay $5 a month for it. And so that was sort of our, you know, our initial points and and our grounding points for determining what the price was going to be. And those anchors, I think, set our expectations. So when we went out to mark and we said 51529, we didn't really recognize how large some of the stores were on the platforms that we supported, whether that be Shopify or BigCommerce or any of the others that came later. And I think the most surprising thing was was really how much we had undervalued what we had built and what we could charge, what we could reasonably charge merchants where they were happy with with the value they were receiving and we were happy with the amount that we were charging. And I think a lot of software developers, especially independent software developers, make that same mistake where they really do undervalue what they're selling. And they could be selling their products for a lot more money than they than they currently are. Yeah, I think a great first step is, like you said, you had three different plan tiers and you started at that. You, know, you, you thought people might pay $5, so you put that on the low end, but you had plans above that. And I imagine probably to your surprise, oh, people are picking... The $29 one, where you thought people would only ever pick the $5 one. That's 
that's curious. <laughs> that's that's interesting. What's what's going on there? Yeah, exactly. And and you you get to learn that, right? Now in our in our case, it was we would price mainly based on how many orders a store was getting on a monthly basis. So as your store was more popular and making more money, we charged you more money, which which is I think a great value metric to sort of align to. But you know, yeah, like you're you're wondering, like there were definitely customers that were eligible for five and picked fifteen or picked twenty nine. You know, one of the things that we that I was told as we were building this company was always always give your customers the ability to pay you more money, right? Like you should never, you should never, you should never sort of make that not an option for them. You know, if you have two plans, add a third plan. Some people just want to buy the best thing. Some people have budget that they need to spend. You know, you can, you can extract more money with very little feature differentiation just by providing an option for customers to spend more with you. And I think, like I said, a lot of people, I think, especially sort of smaller software companies really do tend to undervalue what it is that they've built. Yeah, I think the the smaller products that only have one price point or that's probably the probably the easiest thing to address is to introduce other price points. And to your point there there are people that want to buy the most premium option and there are other people who want to buy the second most like they want to get the value option which would be like the option like right under the most expensive plan and like well, you, if you add a plan above your most expensive plan, now your previously most expensive plan is now your value option. So it's like, it's a really strange, the, the world of like price optimization feels like it just does not abide by the rules of like every, everything else that we, we've come to understand. But yeah, you're, you're totally right. And I think the, you know, the, the first thing is just like, if you have only one price, like at a second price at a, at a second higher price and like that that feels like a really nice safe initial initial test to run yeah and and don't be worried if if the feature differentiation doesn't doesn't really justify it at least initially right i, I think you can you can have some things that you add in there that are relatively easy to do and find you know find a few things that you think people would find valuable and put them into that higher price point and and just experiment and see if people will pay it or not. And I think a lot of people would be surprised. And I, I do think that's one of the reasons why Rewind was so successful. Just, you know, the culture of experimentation that we put into from a pricing perspective really early on helped drive a large increase in revenue in those very early years, which in turn allowed us to, you know, take on some small investments early on, which allowed us to hire more people, which, you know, just became sort of self-fulfilling that the business was growing nicely as we raised more money. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a great point. I think people are frequently kind of almost like self-conscious or like, like you said, I think you put it perfectly of like, oh, well, I can imagine a lot of people sort of talking themselves out of a price point or like, oh, well, these features really aren't worth the extra money. And so I'm going to just put all the features into one plan or, or I'm going to keep the prices lower, but yeah, you, you don't know. And like you mentioned, having that Having that mentality of experimentation is just like, well, just put it out there. And like the 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 practical chance that anybody's going to come across your pricing page and like be like, oh, these prices are too high. Like I hate, I hate this person now. This person's terrible. It's like really like, I mean, I'm I suppose not impossible, but very, very unlikely. In fact, those people are probably just gonna be like, oh, this isn't for me. And they're just gonna leave and they're not gonna think about you again. So giving it some sort of shot. It's probably, I imagine that 
you could have a very small difference between the plants. Like maybe like to you, something that's laughably, laughably different, but you might find that people sign up for that higher plant here. And then now you need to deal with that data. <laughs> now you need to like, okay, cool. Well, geez, well, what do we do with this? We didn't think this was going to work and it worked. Sounds like what you did is you're like, all right, well, let's increase the price like five or six or seven times. And like, all right, let's, yeah, let's just see, let's just see what happens. Let's get that data and understand like what the actual value of this product is in the hands of our customers. And give an equal, you have an equal chance of being right and wrong right? When you, when you launch that product. So you really don't know. And you really do have to think about it and say, okay, it's just a test. Let's see what happens. And as long as you're, you know, you're talking to your customers, you're getting that feedback, you're watching your conversion rates, you're using all the data and metrics that you can get access to, to understand like, you know, to your point, like are people looking at that price and then leaving? So what's your conversion rate? How does your conversion rate get affected? You know, even if you raise your price high enough and your conversion rate goes down, you still might end up making more money. So then you have to start deciding, like, is it better to have more customers at less revenue or fewer customers at more revenue? Right. And there's different reasons why you'd want to implement either of those strategies. But I think the key is, you know, getting that feedback. And and I know one of the things we did was we we just talked to every customer we could. Every customer that installed, we had an automated email that went out who I requested to, to speak with them on the phone. And so we, we knew as we raised that price, you know, at the top end from, from $29 to $299 to $499, like I talked to those customers at $499 and I heard the complaints and we ended up backing that price back down to $299 based on the feedback that we had from customers. So I think as long as you're, you know, you're talking to them, you're actively engaged with them, you're monitoring your metrics, you're, you know, you can, you can measure things. I see no reason why you can't start testing things and trying things out and see what works. Yeah. And it's so, it's so healthy for your business too. Like you're getting 10 times the amount of revenue from the same features and the same customer that you would have gotten before. And that, like you said, that allows you to hire more people or even, you know, thinking long-term it's like, well, you know, can we afford raises can we afford you know like these you know very like nice like you know you know ways to to take care of your team and take care of your company and and how can you keep fueling growth and keep fueling new opportunities so yeah it's kind of like that's like the i think people can think ahead to like what the uncomfortable confrontation with the customer is going to be of like oh we've increased the price or i mean for new customers it's not necessarily the case but you were talking to all of them so you, I'm sure you got to hear it, but you, you don't think about it's because it's not a confrontation, but sort of like, well, what's the long term effect of us? You know, if your company had stayed at $29 on the top end, you probably couldn't have hired as many people. The growth trajectory wouldn't have been as fast. Like, you don't really have the internal opportunities. Investors probably not not as interested at that amount. So it's just a totally, you know, it's kind of like an opportunity that would have evaporated if you didn't have that experimentation mindset. Like, well, yeah, let's, let's, let's just try it. You know, kind of like, that's like the actual ramification of like, yeah, let's just, let's just give it a shot see what happens. I totally agree. And I think that's exactly, that's exactly right. That we wouldn't be the size of company we are today if we hadn't have, have done all that pricing experimentation for sure. Cool. So that sounds like kind of like we're, I don't know, maybe we're, we're hitting the, the full life cycle so far, but it sounds like that's, that's kind of the early days of Rewind. What's kind of going on sort of like mid or what's like, what's the current state of, of the company? What are you working on? Uh, yeah. And, and so the company, you know, we continued to grow the company, you know, we were, we were, we weren't quite bootstrapped, but we really, when we raised money, we tried to raise as little money as possible. 
And so we, we, we became very efficient and, and we were able to grow our revenue nicely to the point last year where we raised a series A about a year ago now and then raised a series B about three or four months ago now. And so it's been, you know, just a fantastic journey for us. We're up to 115 people or so these days growing really, really quickly. I think we were 35 or so when the pandemic started. So it's just been a tremendous amount of growth in the last 18 months or so. And uh, continuing to to grow the business, we're expanding out to cover more, to back up more SaaS platforms. So we currently support Shopify, BigCommerce, QuickBooks, Trello, and GitHub, and really planning on a massive expansion to different SaaS applications next year. So our vision is, is really, we want to back up the entire cloud. We want to back up every SaaS service that's in existence. And, and we're working right now on technology that's going to help us do that next year. That's awesome. How do you, and I think maybe I'm just thinking a little bit too personally for me, where I'm the type of person where I'm like, I'm actually kind of, I feel like I, my, my mindset's like where your co-founder was when you initially had the idea where I'm like, yeah, you know, our, our files are in Google Drive or whatever. We, we, have, we have data in, in GitHub and Trello and all these different places. And I'm sort of of the mentality of like, yeah, it's probably fine. <laughs> Uh, you know, and I, I sure hope every time I log in that my data is going to be there. But yeah, you know, it really hasn't sort of crossed my mind of like this is like a as someone in charge of a of a company like this is something that I should probably put in place before we have an issue. How do you speak to people like me and like how do you do do you do a lot of convincing of like hey you really should get ahead of the ball in this or do you deal with a lot of companies that come to you and be like. Hey, we lost data now, and we don't want to do that again moving forward. Yeah, I think the the larger companies tend to have policies that require them to have backups, whether that's internal or maybe external through things like SOC two compliance or ISO twenty seven thousand and one. So these external mandates that they've got, or sometimes internal, you know, just IT policies that state any platform we have has to have a backup. So the larger customers tend to be more aware of the problem and more and and actively looking for a solution i think the small to medium-sized customers are ones that require a bit of a different approach because they don't necessarily have the same policies that are driving the the need for backups so it it does typically come down to i experienced it or a friend that i know experienced it or another store owner that i know experienced that data loss somehow they become aware of the problem and and then become looking and then come looking to rewind for the solution but you know the one the one thing i do joke with people and don't don't try this at home but if you if you are pretty sure that your data is safe you know go in and and delete something and and don't delete your production stuff but go and create a a test item and then delete it and then contact support and ask them to get it back and i think that action would surprise a lot of people on what is actually able to be restored in the cloud and what's not able to be restored in the cloud. And then would then prompt people to go and look for a backup solution that would protect their data in a different way that the platforms protect, you know, the whole system. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes sense. And even just like, I think you could even take a step back and just play, you know, as, as an actor, think about like what it would be like, Hey, Hey, like what if we, what, what would happen if we logged into GitHub and our code wasn't there? Like, geez, that would be, that would be bad. <laughs> like, sure, sure, that doesn't happen. Or, you know, oh, our 
our product roadmap. Like, you know, everything's like, it eventually makes its way to Trello, but there were, you know, hundreds of Google Docs and many hours spent with many teams and a lot of data was gathered and we asked customers and we, we got everybody, we were very diligent. We did our, we did our jobs and we asked all of our customers how much they would pay for these new features. And that makes it all through to a product roadmap. And it's like, well, yeah, well, what if we just went to that and it was gone? It's like, well, geez, we have artifacts all over the place, but you know, we really, that would be, you know, probably dozens of hours down the drain if we had to reconstruct that. And, um, I always feel like when you have to redo work like that, you kind of approach it in a little bit of a, it's like a little bit deflated. Like if you've ever deleted like a a document or something like that, like you can rewrite it. You still have the information in your head, but man, it's just like, it's just, it's not the same. It's, you're not in the same mindset still to, to redo that sort of work. Yeah. And, and I think the reality for backups, right, is it, unfortunately you need it before the problem happens. Like rewind is not a data forensics tool that can go and restore data on a, on a hard drive that you send to us. It is SaaS backups and it needs access to your data. It needs a copy of that data before the problem happens. So you can't wait until the problem happens and then hope that it can be recovered. You have to have it installed ahead of time before the problem happens. You know, it is a, it's definitely, I think the largest challenge that we have is, is explaining to people the difference between what most cloud providers do protect and what Rewind protects and why you would need a solution from a company like ours. Yeah. Well, maybe anybody who's listening, like, and I'm, I'm guilty of this too. I know it's, it's tough that <laughs> you have like a million things going on when you're trying to operate a business, especially at the the smaller stage. And you might fall into that, that mentality of the, the person that we were talking about before that's doing the, you know, 10, 12, 14 hour days and you're just trying to make it work. So, you know, it, it might not be something that you want to dive on immediately, but yeah, maybe this can be a little bit, just a quick reminder, not a sales pitch, but just like, Hey, like, think about this in the back of your mind and the, all the other tasks that you have going on of like, it might be a pretty good investment to protect this data up front uh, instead of running into an issue. And then now not only are you dealing with the, you will be distracted by the fact that you've lost data and you'll need to get that back somehow. But then you also, you'll add this task on top of it of like, okay, well, how do I make sure that I never get caught out again. And so you're going to, you'll probably go through this process eventually. So it might be a good thing. Just add to, I know these, these sorts of items tend to fall further down on the to-do list, but it might be good to at least add it to your to-do list. If it's not already on there, just to investigate, you know, a a product like rewind and um, see if you can get a little bit of protection on the front end instead of getting, getting hit with something, which is like, kind of like, I know you probably know better than I do, but I don't know if inevitable is the right word, but maybe maybe higher higher percentage than what you might want to have happen. Yeah, I think it's a, it's more likely than people think at the end of the day, but one out of every uh, four or five of our customers ends up having to restore data at some point. So it happens a lot more often than I think people expect um, and hope. Cool. Well... Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for your time. This is this has been awesome, and I think we, we've kind of we've kind of teed it up here at the end. But yeah, do you want to share if, if somebody somebody's kind of thinking about this and going, oh yeah, you know, I actually would be pretty out of luck if we if we lost this data. Do you want to give the the listeners a little bit of details about signing up for for Rewind or any other info you think might be useful for them? Yeah, you can. Re- so Rewind's on the internet, and you can sign up for free at rewind.com. And then link your accounts from there, or you can follow us on Twitter at Rewind. Awesome. Mike, well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. 
Yeah, thanks, Brian. It was really fun being here. Thanks for having us. That was our conversation with Mike Potter, founder of Rewind. If you need to back up, restore, and copy critical information for your SaaS business, you know where to go, rewind.com. If it's business analytics and growth tools you're looking for, check us out at bearmetrics.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode and invite you to check out our other founder chats. And if you're able to share with a friend or leave a review, it goes a long way. Thanks for listening.